We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Tuesday, August 21st, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dane. Jake Hughes is your producer, and coming up on today's show, we are going to speak to Jason Justice. He is the founder of Justice Brands. He's got his own brand of alcohol out there. They got moonshine, they got whiskey. More importantly than that, he's the founder of an organization that's bringing together brewers, vintners, and distillers within the veteran community to basically give them a leg up on getting into the industry. We're going to talk to him about that network, about Justice Brands, and so much more coming up in just a little bit. And then later on, Justin Brown, founder and CEO of Hillvets, will be live in studio to talk about, well, the latest and greatest things going on with Hillvets. We had Senator Tammy Baldwin in studio earlier this week, and she brought with her a Hillvets Fellow that's now on her staff. So we're going to talk to Justin about the Hillvets Fellows as well as everything that's going on on Capitol Hill as it pertains to veterans. Of course, Congress, you know, they've been taking their August recess, but things are about to heat up once again. Then, of course, we've got elections coming up in a few months. There's some veterans who are looking to be elected, and hopefully they're going to bring some more veterans along with them if they get elected into office on their staff which is a big focus of Hillvet. So all of that coming up on this Tuesday edition of the show. Also coming up immediately, as in right now, super producer Jake Hughes. Jake, good morning. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Eric, how are you? I'm okay. My drive was one of those ones where the GPS uh, told me to get off at an exit that I'd never heard of before, and I went, oh, no, this is not good. Took me through parts of our nation's capital that I hadn't seen before. Just did not look familiar at all. Felt like I was in uh, a different city just because I was coming in from a different angle. You know, you get used to your your route coming in. Yeah, you're supposed to vary your route, especially when you're stationed overseas. I remember those AFN spots. Vary your route and be sure to wear khaki pants with a pastel polo shirt so that you blend in with the people in your surroundings. Of course, Americans are the only ones who ever wear khakis with polo shirts, but I digress. Uh, my route coming in here every morning is basically the same. There's uh, a couple options towards the end, depending on the traffic as you get into the city. This day was just a wacky one. I was driving through <laughs> residential neighborhoods, like, am I anywhere near the city? I didn't see any buildings or any businesses, but I got here, and that's, I guess, all that matters. And I got here so that we can talk about the latest and greatest items taking place around the veteran community. And of course, we'll start with some of the top items from ConnectingVets.com, your number one website for all things veteran-related, aimed not only at us veterans ourselves, but at our spouses, at our families, at our friends, at anyone who has an interest in veterans' items. You want to check out ConnectingVets.com every day and follow us on social media, where we are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and the YouTubes. We've talked about this several times, and it looks like now this issue that's been talked about more in theory than anything is actually uh, coming a little bit more true, and that is Arlington National Cemetery. It is the, the hallowed grounds where the remains of American heroes and those who served honorably are laid to rest. 
But it's running out of room, Jake. Yep. I mean, a cemetery is not an unlimited space. And Arlington is basically in Washington, D.C., just across the Potomac River. They're running out of space. So what are they going to do about it? Well, thankfully, I guess it's the federal government. So they have the ability to annex more property that's near Arlington National Cemetery now. Uh, Some of it right up against Arlington. Some of it a short distance away. But here's the thing about that. There's only so much room over there unless you're going to start raising buildings and digging up stuff and evicting people from houses. There's only so much open space in this city and all American cities that eventually they're going to have to find something else. You know, I mean, Arlington, uh, maybe Arlington, too, that's going to be a little bit down the road or something like that. Uh, in, in Washington, D.C., it's just not there's not enough room for Arlington for many- to Arlington harder. Yeah. Arlington too. more Arlington, more Arlington. I don't know. I'm not good at that. But, you know, there is a. Uh, a serious problem there, and it's a problem that uh, people are running into all over the country with burial grounds, not just veteran cemeteries, but yes, veteran cemeteries included, where, you know, essentially everyone who's died, unless they're cremated or their remains are done with in some other way, everyone that's died and that's been buried is put in the ground someplace. You're going to run out of room eventually unless you start Uh, like they do over in Europe. Of course, Europe's been around uh, a little bit longer. At least society over there has been around a little bit longer than here uh, across the pond in North America. In a lot of the cemeteries over there, what they do is they build up. And you also see that on islands where there's limited space, where you'll have uh, graves on top of graves on top of graves. And it's just uh, kind of interesting, kind of different for us. I mean, there's some cultures where cremation and things like that just aren't an option. They don't do that culturally. It's not something that they believe in. Here, uh, we do have that, uh, and that can make for, you know, if you spread the ashes at sea or something, well, there you go. Then that doesn't require any burial space. And if you do bury the ashes, it takes a much smaller space than a full-size, you know, six-foot-long or whatever the case may be, coffin. Um, It'll be interesting to see in the coming years exactly what's done about this, whether they're going to take... Uh, maybe some parkland someplace and turn that into uh, an additional cemetery space. But there's not really anything right there at Arlington. It's going to have to be in a different location. What do you think about that? Do you think they should try to keep it because it's now so closely associated with where it is, Arlington, Virginia? Do you think they should try to keep it in Arlington proper or do you think it doesn't matter and it's who's buried there rather than where the burial ground is? It's definitely who's there. And it's one of these things where... You knew this was coming at some point. Even back in the day, they knew this was going to happen at some point. So I think expanding it to go past Arlington's bounds and opening up someplace elsewhere, I think it's it's more about the respect we show to the service members that are buried there than an actual space. Yeah, And I think that's why... Arlington is so well revered because you got people like Audie Murphy, the Tomb of the Unknowns, you know, all these different memorials in that section. If you start building that someplace else, it's going to be just as revered. Well, maybe not as revered, but it's still going to be a hallowed ground. Maybe not today because, you know, in the same way that, like you mentioned, uh, Audie Murphy, he's, I think, a little bit more revered now because there's more time between his passing and today uh, than maybe he even was when he was first buried. So, you know, right now, when, when you're the people who are there when the new cemetery, wherever it may be, if that's what ends up happening, is opened, you'll see it as something new, but generations down 
on the line, it'll be like it's always been there. Because remember, for us, Arlington is this thing that's it's always been there. Arlington National Cemetery. Arlington National Cemetery has not always been there. There was something else there first. You got to remember that. So I, I think with uh, the 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 benefit of maybe living, let's say you and I live to a ripe old age in our 80s or 90s or like my grandfather, 103, there may be a day where you know we're able to look at it and go like, I remember when it was brand new, the cemetery at fill in the blank of wherever they're going to put it, but it will mean a lot more to the younger generations because they weren't there when it started. It's just one of those interesting things about history for, for someone who's living in a time afterwards, it's history, but for someone who was there, it's, it's just what they went through. September 11th is a good example. You know, there are kids these days who weren't alive. They're now almost adults. 18 years old. I mean, if you're 17, you weren't alive when September 11th, 2001 happened. Think about that. That's something that's historical for them. It's not something they went through. They weren't on board the USS Saipan or actually the barge right next to it giving an in-doc class like I was. Or uh, where were you on September 11th? High school geometry. There you go. So it's something that, you know, for you, it was a fact of life. It's something that you were there for. You witnessed in in one way or another, whereas for this younger generation, it's going to be something they read about in books and it'll just have a different context for them, just like Pearl Harbor does for us. I mean, we look at it one way, but the people who were there and went through Pearl Harbor, they look at it a very different way. It's not history for them. It's their life. It's something they went through. And uh, you can kind of look at this cemetery issue, I think, through the same lens. So that'll be something that, of course, we'll keep an eye on over the years. But, uh, you know, it's it's just a fact. It's 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 physics. There's a limited amount of space. You can't just keep putting more and more people in there unless, I mean, it's not like Parking, where if you have a, a parking lot that's constantly full, you just build a garage on top of it. I don't think they're going to do that at Arlington, turn it into a massive tomb, a massive uh, structure where you could put uh, more and more bodies in and just keep uh, uh, lifting it up higher and higher. They got to figure out something, and it looks like they're working on that now. They've started annexing territory, but again, there are limits to that as well. The traveling Vietnam wall we talked about yesterday opening up out in Warren, Ohio. Well, it opened up and it drew a very large crowd yesterday. There was a C-130 flyover by the 910th Airlift Wing from Youngstown Air Reserve Station. Uh, quite a few people showed up, including the mayor of uh, Warren. You've got uh, U.S. Representative Timothy Ryan, a Democrat from out there in Ohio. A lot of people a lot of people came out for it, and that was just for the opening cemetery. The good thing is this wall, while it's traveling around the country and all the locations where it's put, will be open 24 hours a day. So the good people of Warren who were working maybe and weren't able to make it out for the opening ceremony or those who live a ways away from Warren, Ohio, you get to go whenever works best for you. So something that uh, I definitely highly recommend, and it looks like, again, very popular. Thousands of people came out there, and uh, it, it looks like it was a pretty great event. And again, we talked about it yesterday. I think it's fantastic for the people that haven't had the chance to get to Washington, D.C. and see uh, one of the most famous, one of the most well-known, one of the more more emotional for most people who see it, memorials out there. They're bringing this three-quarter size replica, which is pretty darn big around the country. So a lot of people are going to get to take a look at that. Speaking of around the country, Jake, certain pharmacies are just nationwide. You've got things like CVS, right? You go to Texas, you'll find CVS. You go to New York, CVS. California, CVS. Walgreens, that's another one, right? 
Uh, was there a Walgreens down near where you grew up in yeah. Houston? Yep. So there you go. Well, if you're a veteran who gets your prescriptions filled at Walgreens, there's some good news. There's going to be a new collaboration between the pharmacy chain, which is the second largest in the United States, and the VA. VA providers will now be able to see the medical and immunization history of all VA enrolled patients during your doctor visits. Before this partnership, veterans were responsible for giving their VA providers information about which medications they had filled at Walgreens. Now there's going to be direct communication between the two so that you don't have someone forgetting. I mean, my goodness. I, I Thankfully, I don't have to take any uh, daily prescriptions, but there are people who have to take several, and it can be hard to keep track of them, especially if it's a temporary one, one that you've just started taking or you took for a little while. Stop taking. Um, seamless communication is a big thing. And Secretary Wilkie, the new VA secretary, has said, quote, this arrangement is the first of its kind, and it's a strong collaboration. Partnerships like this will help VA continue to improve the way we care for veterans. Uh, in 2014, a previously announced collaborative initiative integrated veterans' medical records through the electronic health record platform. Uh, that's something that's still ongoing, of course. We've talked about it a lot. Justin Brown, who's coming on later today from HillVets, uh, has kept uh, a close eye on the electronic health record. Well, fiasco, if we're being yeah. honest. The seamless communication and transition thing seems like it should be simple, but it hasn't been. And the fact that in this day and age, in 2018, there's not an open way and already a way for your health records to get from the DOD to the VA when you get out of the military, it's kind of shocking to me. But then I think about this. When I went to a civilian doctor, from my first civilian doctor, I get out, I'm on VA care for a while, then I end up on my wife's insurance, she's got a pretty good insurance plan through her job, go to a doctor, her doctor, our physician up in New York, and there was basically a question about, a, I think it was about a prescription or something, they said, well, we, we tried sending it over, but the pharmacy didn't get it. I was on the phone with them and I said, well, can you email it to them? because they were trying to use a fax machine, because apparently it's 1996 and not 2014 or 15 or whenever this is happening. <laughs> uh, they also maybe have a time machine, because if you have a fax machine, <laughs> why not? They told me, oh, we don't have email. We don't have what? Email. <laughs> yeah. I, a what? Yeah. I, I, I asked the woman on the phone, I said, how is that possible and how do you conduct business if you don't have email capability, you're telling me no one there has like a Gmail account. I know you have a copier and a scanner. You can't scan something, put it into your, your, your personal email account. You don't have a work one. Okay. Just get it over here. I guess there are laws about them using their personal email accounts. They told me, but this was a large doctor's office in New York, just outside of New York city who don't use email at all they have no official email capability so think about that that's How are it. they still in business oh they're and their business was rocking now here's the thing a lot of their clientele as it is at a lot of doctors elderly people a lot of elderly people don't use email we forget about that email is a recent invention i got my first email address well no i, got, I had an aol email address <laughs> on one of those like uh, three and a half inch floppy disks you'd get in the mail because we didn't have a CD-ROM drive on our first computer. Uh, I had that one and then that went away because you know back then you paid by paid by the minute for AOL. You remember those days oh, when you yeah. would actually it wasn't just a flat monthly fee; it was however much time you spent on there. I spent a lot of time on there, so my mother was like, "Yeah, we're gonna go ahead and get rid of that. That's a little bit too much money." 
when I got to the Defense Information School when I was in the military, that's when I got my first email address, a Hotmail address, which I don't even know if I could get into anymore. I haven't ever used it for anything beyond the first couple of years I was in the military, and most people I knew didn't have an email address, and it just kind of fell by the wayside. But this is that was 20 years ago. Just about 1998 is when I got to the Defense Information School. 20 years ago, I got my first real email address. That's a long time, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not. And for the uh, the older generation, a lot of them don't use social media, don't use uh, email. They still use the, the post. They're still sending things in the mail. They're using the phone. They're using, yes, fax machines. There are things that that we take for granted that earlier generations just don't use quite in the same way that we do. And some businesses, because that's a large part of their clientele, haven't adapted to it. Eventually, they're going to have to. I mean, when I'm 70 years old, uh, you know, God willing, I make it that far, I'll be using email or I'll be using whatever the newest thing is where like I type things in my eyes using my fingers on an imaginary keyboard or whatever happens. Whatever. Yeah, it's one of those things though where, I, you know, it the electronic healthcare record issues are surprising at face value, but then if you look around at both the civilian and of course the, uh, the military and government uh, way that things work, it's not totally. Yeah, totally not really. Shocking. It's not absolutely shocking. And it's also one of those things when I just mentioned people like to use the phone of an older generation. Jake, do you ever have a problem with picking up a phone and calling someone? Like if, if, if I am working on the weekend show and I send you a phone number and say like, hey, give this person a call and see if they're able to come in on the show next week. That's not a problem for you, right? You just pick up the phone and call them. Yeah. Let me tell you this. Having gone to college uh, in recent years, just graduated like four or five, four or three years ago, something like that. That is something that the younger generations do not do, will not do. They communicate by text or in person, and sometimes, obviously, and ironically enough, by text when they're close enough to speak in person. The phone, <laughs> it's just like this archaic thing that they get nervous about, and it was kind of crazy. I, I went, uh, my first uh, job while I was still in college and in, in the broadcasting industry was at a radio station, 1010 Winds in New York City. When I got there and I was doing my first training shift, the person who was training me was saying like, all right, so one of the things that you're going to have to do is pick up the phone and call uh, people. So are you okay to handle that? And I just kind of looked at him and I was like, what? Why wouldn't I be? He was like, well, a lot of people who come out of college. I was like, all right, all right, all right. Let me tell you right now. I know I look very young. I'm in college, but I'm in my 30s. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm fine with picking up the phone. But there were people that weren't. I had to train people and be like, all right, so when this happens, uh, you're going to have to call DCPI, which is the Public Affairs Office for NYPD, basically. We have them on speed dial. You just pick it up. You hit this, and then zero one goes right to the police. They'll answer whatever questions you have. You know, there are certain questions that you ask. I, I had one of them ask, like, can't we just like text them or maybe send maybe send an email <laughs> if it needs to be official? So that's something that happens these days where you have people that they think they consider a text, something that we didn't have when we were growing up is like unofficial, unofficial communications. And then if something needs to be really official and direct, then you send an email. Okay. If you want, Kids if, these days. If you want a written record of it, email does make sense. But picking up the phone and talking to someone. If you call some office like, like uh, you know, using the example of up there at 1010 Winds, the New York Fire Department or the New York Police Department, send an email. You're going to get a response 
Maybe the fastest you're going to get it is like five minutes from then. That's the fastest possible one. More likely you're going to get it about an hour from when you send your thing, get a response. Maybe you call them on the phone. Guess what? You're getting an immediate answer right away. And when it comes to uh, live news radio, like we were doing there, an immediate answer was a key. But it's one of those things where, you know, as, as the old guy, the old veteran who was going through college in his 30s, I saw a lot of that. And I think we're going to see more of it. Yeah. In, uh, in the outside world. There's actually, there's been studies done about how the, the quote-unquote iPhone generation, this newer generation, that because they do all their, their glued to their phone so much, right. they lose some interpersonal skills. Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I witnessed that firsthand as well. It was a fascinating thing. Um, and it's also something that, you know, I remember walking across the campus with uh, a couple fellow vets, both army guys. One of them was a, a ranger battalion guy. Another one was an infantryman. And we're walking across campus and there was a little demonstration. My school didn't have like the large scale demonstrations that you see at Berkeley or NYU or places like that. But occasionally you get a couple of uh, I want to say kids, they are kids, but a couple of students, a couple of young adults who had something that meant a lot to them and they wanted to get out there and talk about it. At one of them, uh, I saw somebody taking a photo and I recognized the person as being from, um, you know, the journalism school and working in the, I think worked for the, one of the school papers there. And they tried to stop the person from taking a picture of them. Like, no, this, this is not for the media. It's like, well, you're doing it in public area it's, yeah. it's for everybody if you want didn't want the media there you got to be private and as, as i was saying when a, a lot of veterans i saw on twitter the other day with uh, a certain uh, congressional candidate from new york who did something similar had a public event uh, in new york city and didn't oh, allow yeah, the media her. at it there were a lot of veterans who were like this is no freedom of speech and also freedom of the press and all this stuff uh you know you 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 can't block it but we're going to see more of that coming on and again it just goes to il illustrate that generational divide on why some people don't use email why some people think they can tell the media that they can't uh, cover them when they're doing something newsworthy in a public space or why people won't pick up the phone but i digress Veterans Ready to Work. That's an interesting organization from the Academy of United States Veterans Quarterly Power of Collaboration event. Uh, there, there is a lot of great stuff going on out there in the veteran community to try and get people into jobs and get people into work. And this is one of them. If you are interested in finding work, if you're struggling with that, if you know someone who is, there are so many organizations and groups out there who are looking to help you and who want to help you. And it's not just for the 22-year-old who just gets out after their first uh, enlistment or for the person who retires. There are organizations for everybody out there. And if you go to ConnectingVets.com, well, you can see a story by Lauren Warner on Veterans Ready to Work and how they're wanting to help you at each step. Jake, let me ask you, when you got out, uh, your, your first thing you wanted to do, you wanted to be a truck driver. You gave that a try for a while. Yep. Probably made sense to you, as, as many things do when we get out and we have a plan on what we want to do. You enjoy uh, being alone sometimes. You like driving. Trucker, right? Yep. Didn't work out for you. Nope. When you left being a trucker, you didn't enjoy it. Uh, what 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 would have been most beneficial to you in the search for work in that time between leaving the trucking industry and coming here to connecting vets? Someone to help me with my resume and someone to that had connections in, in, into an industry that I was trying to get into. That's a big key. It's a huge key, and it's all about connections. And I've had people ask me, like, oh, you know, you were a AFM broadcaster, and you did all this stuff. Is, is that how you got your job here? 
No, that's not how I got my job here. I got my job here because of connections that I made in New York at 1010 Winds that I mentioned earlier. I got the job at 1010 Winds uh, very interestingly because I was invited, despite the fact that I wasn't a member of, of this class uh, during the winter break, they had an extra seat on a tour of CBS Radio in New York City. I went in and during the Q&A session with Lee Harris, who is the morning news anchor at 1010 Winds, he's a Hofstra University Radio Hall of Famer, my alma mater, at the Q&A, I was the only one with any cues. <laughs> Made me stick out to Lee. Lee introduced me to the bosses there. They said, you know what? We don't have anything available right now, but if we do, we're going to remember you. And they weren't just saying that. They actually called me a couple months later. There you go. It's about those connections. And I was very lucky to be in New York City and just a, a coincidence that I went in there. If that hadn't happened, I might still be looking for work in this industry or at least looking for something at the level that we're doing here at Connecting Vets. And that's what organizations like Veterans Ready to Work, Hire Heroes USA, Hiring Our Heroes. There are so many organizations out there that can, will, and want to help you. All you got to do is reach out to them and go to ConnectingVets.com right now or follow us on social media at Connecting Vets on all the main social media platforms, and you'll be kept up to date on all of these organizations and the wonderful services they're looking to provide for veterans. You're listening to The Morning Briefing on Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Coming up next, Jason Justice, United States Army Captain and founder of Justice Labels, and a very interesting network that's bringing together veterans who work in the spirits, beer, and wine industries. Coming up right after this, and then later, Justin Brown of Hill Vets. Keep it here. Morning briefing back after this. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Connecting Vets. Welcome back to the morning briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day is our slogan, and it's what we do. And you know why we do it? Because each and every member of our team knows what it's like to have worn the uniform, and just importantly, and just as importantly, we know what it's like to take it off that very last time. That's why our team is working tirelessly every single day to get information out there that we think could benefit, inform, and yes, maybe even entertain the veteran community out there. So go check out ConnectingVets.com and be sure to follow us on social media. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest is someone who's gotten into the space of entrepreneurship while still serving. His name is Jason Justice. He's a captain in the Army, and he runs the company Justice Label LLC. Justin, good morning. How are you today? Hey, how's it going, Eric? It's going pretty well. So let's briefly just talk about your military service. As I mentioned, you're still serving in the United States Army, uh, one of those officer types in the Army. Where are you from, and when did you join? Well, uh, I'm actually an Army brat, so I was uh, born in Germany with my, my dad, and he was serving as a infantryman at the time. And we moved over to the United States in the early 90s. And about the time we got here, he got to go to Desert Storm. So I've pretty much been around military organizations, military bases my whole life. And it's just kind of was ingrained into me. And when I was about 17, I decided I wanted to join the Army, too. And, you know, this was after many years of playing soldier in the yard and at recess and stuff like that. 
And uh, my dad said he wanted me to become an officer or at least get an education. So he made a deal with me that he was going to pay for my first year of college and I could decide whether I wanted to enlist right from there or if I was able to get a scholarship or something. And so I started at a community college and I ended up getting involved with the ROTC program. And it led me to uh, Texas A&M where I got a uh, kinesiology degree and I deployed about uh, eight months after graduating. Wow, so that's pretty quick. Now, a question for you as someone who is uh, you know, former Army brat, now serving in the Army. I served in the Navy for 13 years, and now I've got a little guy. I'm not sure how I'd feel about him wanting to join the military. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know uh, exactly how I would view that. How did your family view you going in? Was it something that your father fully supported or something that he wanted to make sure you had all the necessary information for? Well, you know, I don't, I don't know if he fully supported it. You know, it was uh, my decision. I brought it to him, and, and he supported me. You know, that was that was more important, I think, uh, when you look at it that way. And, you know, his father, my, my papa, he had served in all four branches of the military since the end of World War II. And my cousins are in the military. His, all of my dad's brothers were in the military. So it was, it was kind of a family business, you know, for, for the military. So I don't know if it was so much as an expectation to join the military, but it was definitely supported if, I, if it was something I wanted to do. Of course, if the Justice family business is being in the military, then Jason's branching out a little bit on his own through his company, Justice Label LLC. Tell me, when did you decide that you wanted to go into business for yourself in addition to serving uh, in the military? Well, when I got back from my first deployment in 2011, um, Actually, I met my wife while on deployment. I, I was hit with an IED in April of 2010 while we were we were doing uh, convoy operations. We were in a hit company and we were we were moving equipment all over Iraq. And then it went from Iraqi Freedom to Operation New Dawn. And around that time frame, I, I was hit with an IED, and I was hospitalized at JBB, which is Joint Base Balad. And I was put on light duty for about a month before I was allowed to work again. And during that time, that's when I met my wife. And she was a, a lieutenant at the time as well. We're both captains now. You know, she outranks me by five minutes. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we've, got, we've got that dynamic going on at our house is, is you know, a, a dual military uh, couple. But we both came back and, you know, faced a lot of the, the challenges that post 9-11 veterans face. We couldn't get jobs, you know, and it, it was horrible because we were both, you know, educated, which is what everybody tells you you need to get a job. And we were basically just traveling for about six months. I would go to her, her home state in Arizona. She would come to Texas and, you know, we would just spend a month. Uh, going each way and then doing camping and stuff like that until uh, I ended up getting a job for National Oil Well and she ended up getting a job for Union Pacific. And I, I guess I had just come in on the upkick of an oil field boom because we just saw everything moving forward. I, I was brought on as an assistant manager for a pipe fitting plant. And by the end of the year, I, I was promoted to plant manager. I took the facility from about $100,000 a month in revenue to right under $1 million. I'm talking like 
900999 you know. And uh, I started seeing a decline again, and there was an opportunity for active duty um, with a Seaburn mission. So it's a chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear. Uh, we were the logistics element for, if anything happened, west of the Mississippi, basically. And so I, I was brought on active duty as a company commander for that. And while I was doing that, I was also working on my MBA. And I said, you know what, I, I don't know if I want to go back to middle management or the oil field or working for anybody again, really like that. And I decided I was either going to build guns or get into the alcohol industry. So that's kind of what I focused all of my research on. And after that, I settled on a distillery. And that's what I ended up opening in 2015. And then about a year later, I, I finished my MBA. How frightening is it when you're in an industry, you're doing a job, you're having some success doing that job, you've got a, a steady flow of income coming in from it, to then just decide, you know what, I'm going to try something else because I think it might be my calling or something that's going to make me happier. How difficult of a choice was it for you uh, to, to, cut, to cut yourself off from what you were doing and go for something new? Oh, I mean, it was, it was scary to say the least because once I, I'd gotten accepted for the, the active duty position, uh, we actually just had our first child in 2014. And so my wife wanted to quit working for Union Pacific and, and stay home and, and raise the kids and, and, you know, do that part of her life. And, you know, I supported it. So it was just, I, I, we went back to a single income household. And then after the active duty tour, we went to a zero income household, basically. Uh, because the the plant that I was working at had shut down. There was a big reduction in force uh, across the entire oil field sector during that time in, in 2015. And basically, I came back to nothing. You know, I was applying for jobs again and figuring out what I'm going to do. And, and luckily, we had we were smart with our money. You know, we had some savings uh, there saved up and, and some good investments that I had made over the years. And it was just. I got to make it or we're not going to make it. You know, there, there was, it was a back to the wall kind of situation. So it, it's definitely scary, but I always had to maintain a vision and I could never succumb to negative thinking, you know, where as an entrepreneur all the time, you're going to feel like, am I doing the right thing? Is this what I should be doing? Am I going to fail? All the numbers are saying I'm going to fail. All the signs say I'm going to fail right now. And you just got to push through those. And, you know, before I knew it, I, I had a distributor. And then after a distributor, I was putting product all over Texas. And like just in the past four weeks, we've expanded to Florida and California with our product offering. So it, it's, it's definitely not easy. And it's, it's very mentally taxing at times, you know, because you, you just... Sometimes it, it defies logic, but you have to go with your, your guts and with what you know. And if, if you know it's going to work, it's going to work. And, you know, not every day is a, a walk in the park. There's definitely way more challenges than having a nine to five job where problems are kind of dumped on you or you're working on a team to solve them because you're, you're basically expected to lead yourself. And if you can't lead yourself in entrepreneurship, it's, it's going to be a very hard road for people to follow. 
We're speaking with Jason Justice. He is a captain in the Army and runs the company Justice Label LLC. Jason, if someone comes up to you and says, what exactly is Justice Label LLC? You've already given us uh, some hints when talking about spirits in that industry. But what do you tell somebody who walks up and and sees what company uh, you run and asks you exactly what it is you all do? Well, it's a uh, distillery. Uh, in its most simple form, that's that's what we do. We're more geared towards a production uh, side because that's kind of the background that I came from was production facilities. So that's the skills that I applied to what I was doing where I'm, I'm able to produce volume and work a distribution level operation where I'm, I'm more focused on getting product out of my facility and into the market than I am drawing people to me to sell that product. And there's different business models in the alcohol industry and and it's one of many. And it's just the one that I I went with because I was more skilled at doing it. And it was more my comfort level. And lately we've started moving towards doing events and stuff like that, drawing people to us uh, to raise our brand awareness and, and continue that, that growth in distant markets. You know, I think it uh, should go without saying that there are quite a few veterans who enjoy uh, the consumption of the alcoholic beverages. And I imagine there's some who might think, you know, when I get out, this is an industry I'd like to work in. This is something I'd like to do, start my own brand or or work for a distributor or something like that. What are the things that you think veterans out there or people still serving like yourself should know about that industry before they decide to get involved with it? Well, actually, you know, it's it's funny that you raised that point because another veteran uh, brewery owner actually down in Mission, Texas, George Rice, he owns a 5 by 5 Brewing Company. He and I sat down at the end of 2017 and said, you know what, there's not really a good resource for people getting into this industry. You know, I, I started in 2015. I made a bunch of mistakes along the way, and I documented those mistakes, and I started helping others open up their own distilleries based off of my trial and error, you know, telling them, don't do this. This is, this is a waste of money. This is a waste of time. This is something you don't even have to do, you know, focus on these points at this point in your business and and then start shifting your focus towards this. And so I was doing brick and mortar classes for about a year, all through 20, 2016, really, as I was, I took about, I don't know, 30 or 40 people, had come through my distillery. They came from all over Texas to take the classes with me, which was about five hours. And, and it was, a, you know, feeding them through a fire hose about the industry, you know, and just telling them everything I can. They're taking notes. And, and finally, I changed it to an online platform, which is uh, we teach the courses now at justicelabeldistillery.com. And we also take the industry members and we communicate with each other through the distiller, brewer, and vintner network. So a lot of people have actually gotten their start just by reading our free magazine on dbvnw.com. We've got seven issues out now. And what we do is we take stories from all over the country, all over the world, from beer, wine, spirits, distributors, brand owners, marketers, and bring that expertise into a single location where people can communicate with each other and kind of get that knowledge that they need. So like as it stands right now, I've, I've actually I've helped about 15 people get their operations off the ground. Most recently, uh, there was one in Houston with a, an old couple that actually owned like a metalworking shop. So they, they're fabricating about 100% of their equipment and they're building like this big storage barrel room 
out of a shipping container that they're burying in the ground next to the distillery. And it's just, you know, cool things like that, that they've, they've picked up by networking and, and talking to the right people. You know, it's really interesting to hear that you've, you're doing this. And, and I actually had heard about the Distilled Brewer and uh, Vintners Network, but didn't know that you guys actually have, uh, you know, that you're putting out this free information for people in a publication, you know, in an, in an online magazine. I just went to the website, as you said it, and the issues dating back, it looks like, to at least January 2018 uh are there uh, what's been the response from people not just those who have uh, you know had success with it but those who are looking into it now i mean what have you heard as far as feedback from the e-magazine that you guys put out there well i get i get messages all the time from people that are just like you know they're thanking me or they're commenting on somebody's story that is in there a uh, good one is when i first started out I, I just had a couple of people that I knew and that's who I drew upon for like, Hey, share your experience with me, how you opened up your operation, what you did. And one of those people was uh, Steve Porter and he's a, an army vet as well. And he's up in Ohio. So he has a little bit different uh, laws and stuff that he has to follow compared to what I'm following down here in Texas. So it gives a different perspective, you know, that, that what's unique to one area is completely different in another. And I've had at least three people reach out to me over the course of the, the months that we've been putting out the publication and they're just like, if this guy can do it, I can do it too. You know? And I, I shared that with him the other day and he was just like blown away. You know, he was like, man, this is something I've been wanting to do my whole life. I've, I've you know, I've put a lot of blood, sweat and tears and efforts into it. And he goes, that means a lot that my story is helping people, you know, but that's, that's uh, just classic of share your experience with somebody else. You know, somebody will take that experience and grow with it. And some people won't. And, the ones that listen, you help, and the ones that don't, you know, they they, they want to learn stuff a different way or a harder way or whatever way they're used to. We're speaking with Jason Justice. He runs the company Justice Label LLC. They actually sell moonshine and whiskey, and he's also, basically, as he just told us, the principal of the Distiller, Brewer, and Vintner Network. You can find that one at dbvnw.com, which, as he's telling us, puts uh, people involved in the industry together, connects them, and builds those connections. A question for you, Jason. Of course, you know, you make moonshine and whiskey. There are people out there who make vodka. There are people out there who make beer. Are there more similarities than differences between the business that's uh, uh, that takes place depending on which end of the alcohol spectrum you're involved in? Um, not really. I, I would say there's more several different movements in in our industry than anything else. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, you think of whiskey, an outsider sees it as whiskey and that's it. You know, they, they see the major brands, that's what comes to mind. But there's all these subcategories, you know, did, did this whiskey come from grain that the distiller grew? You know, the, that's a whole movement in itself. Is it non-chill filtered? Is it chill filtered? And, and, you know, there's different pieces of equipment that go into that. So really when you're building your operation, you have to know what kind of end product you're making to begin with. For example, a a vodka distillery is going to have a different setup than a whiskey distillery will. And a gin distillery is going to have a different setup than, than either of those. So you got to know what kind of spirit you're making and, and what flavors you're trying to pull through, if you're trying to pull through flavors or not, you know, and that's the, that's where kind of the art comes into it as much as science, you know, and and a good friend of mine, Alan Bishop, he works with uh, spirits of French lick. He's the distiller there. 
And he also contributes to our educational program. He teaches uh, fermentation and distillation for our online courses. Uh, he runs, his specialty is like botanicals. So think absinthe and gin and stuff like that, where you're infusing a flavor into a spirit, but he just does it at a whole nother level. I mean, the guy is literally a master, you know, I'm not going to insult him and call him a master distiller. Cause that's one of his pet peeves <laughs> is, is that, but uh, you know, he's definitely a master at that aspect of distilling and, and he grows his own corn and, and, you know, he's really big into that side of the movement. And then there's another side where people will buy alcohol and process it and package it. And, you know, I, I do both at my facility. So we make our own moonshine. We make our own whiskey. We bottle for other veteran companies like Freedom Hard. We, we do their uh, Freedom Hard Patriotic Whiskey, and we put that out in stores, and, and we kind of guide their brand where it needs to go. And Freedom Hard, the company itself, gets to focus on marketing and not so much product distribution and you know manufacturing. And so it takes that burden off of them where they can just focus on sell, sell, sell. And, you know, we're going to be doing the same thing here with Operation Phantom Support. We've got about four vodkas we're going to put out for them uh, before the end of the year. And also Scars and Stripes, they're going to be doing a bourbon through us. So it's, it's you know, not so much just being a distillery, but knowing all the pieces of the business and how you can use your permits and, and your your licenses to your advantage, you know. So I can bring in these other brands that don't have, you know, the capital to start their own distillery or necessarily the desire or the know-how, you know, it, it's a huge undertaking if you don't have the institutional knowledge uh, that you only gain by being in the industry for a certain amount of time. And so I, I take that burden off and just say, Hey, do what you do best. You do best at promoting and selling. So just promote and sell and I'll make the product that you want to your specifications. And there's several companies in, in the United States that do that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm the only veteran one that does that. Yeah, it makes me think of uh, Costco with their Kirkland brand where they just sell things, but it's actually other people that produce the Kirkland brands for Costco. That's and it sounds correct. like, yeah, it's kind of similar to uh, what you all are doing. And we're speaking with Jason Justice. Jason is a captain in the Army and also runs the company Justice Label LLC, which sells moonshine and whiskey and also, he's uh, the one who started up the Distiller, Brewer, and Vintner Network, which he's been telling us about here. Now, I guess the big question is, you know, you're doing fairly well. You found your, your place in this market with Justice Label and with the, uh, with the network. For a veteran out there, or someone who's currently serving like yourself or right in that process of transitioning, is this an industry that you recommend them trying to get into? And what do you think is a good first step for someone to take? You know, it, I think it is a good industry for 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 anyone to get into. Really, uh, it's fast growing right now uh, across beer, wine, and spirits. I would say the fastest growing right now is beer, but they're also getting a lot of pushback from the larger brands and the larger companies. And I mean, we we recently saw it with Boston Beer Company. You know, they they were just speaking at a White House engagement, and now there's a whole big boycott Boston beer movement. And, you know, I'm, I'm not really following why people would do that, because he's, he's basically just saying, look, uh, all these foreign country uh, companies that are here in the United States producing beer, they're paying less taxes than an American company producing beer. And now it's a level playing field. And that's, that's all that he said. And, and, you know, it's, 
it's he's got such a backlash for it. It's it's very unfortunate, but he's right. You know, the the tax laws that have been in effect for the past two years have been tremendous for industry growth. We went from paying thirteen fifty per proof gallon on the spirit side down to two dollars and seventy cents, and and you know that's a huge difference on your bottom line at the end of the year. So definitely getting into the industry is is not the issue. It just takes a lot of time. On average, you're looking at nine months to get your federal permits done for an alcohol-based uh, operation. That's even if you're doing just alcohol fuel plant where you're making, uh, you know, ingredients for other industries like essential oils and stuff like that. You still have to have that, that permit to make that, that ethyl alcohol. But yeah, I mean, if you're going to start you got to be passionate about it. You know, home brewing is perfectly legal. If you're doing it with beer and wine, you know, get a practice, get a handle on that and see if, Hey, is that something that I'm good at? Is that something that I'm passionate about? Or is it just, you know, am I better at selling? And then, you know, be a brand owner at that point. Either way, you're, you're looking at some capital to get it started, but one is, is drastically different than the other. You know, you might spend 20,000 to create a brand, and you're going to be working to sell it, or you're going to be spending 50000 to open a distillery or an operation and trying to make that run and hope it runs, hope that you're able to bring in your clientele base. Where, so there's, it's more of a risk versus reward and how much time you have to dedicate to it, you know, at the end of the day. We've been speaking with Jason Justice of Justice Label LLC, also serving as a captain in the United States Army now, and he's also the man behind the Distiller, Brewer, and Vintner Network. Now, for that network, Jason, I mean, the e-magazines are available for anyone. I just clicked on one, and there it is, and goes up right there. So is this something that just about anybody can reach out and contact you about, as uh, along with uh, you know reading the magazine archive that's there? I mean, can they also reach out to you directly? Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's there's a contact form on that website, uh, on my own website, justicelabeldistillery.com, and I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm usually available to talk. I, I get to just about every message that comes my way, so I'm always uh, interested in helping people that are seeking knowledge in, in that industry. And for people that are interested in the products that Justice Label sends, including apple pie moonshine, charred moonshine, we got blueberry shine, red hot shine, peach shine, Texas whiskey, all sorts of products that you guys have coming out from Justice Label. Where do people go to find out more about that and where is it available for purchase? So right now we're available in all of the total wines across the state of Texas. And we are actually, with our Florida expansion, we're going to be able to offer a couple of those products for online sale to select states. So we're, we're kind of going through the Total Wines Network, uh, working our way through regions right now. And that's the best bet to find them. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to the morning briefing on Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day what we do and we do it through a variety of means and platforms audio you're listening to this you know we've got that video we now do a live video from the studio every morning with our first segment at 7:15, it actually airs at 8:15, just because of the technical requirements of the show but you can tune in and watch that 
Also see a lot of other great videos like Jonathan Copanger's series about everything that's going on over at the VA. Basically, he worked at the VA. He knows how it works, and he knows how to get you the information you need to make your dealings with the VA as seamless as they possibly can be. Are they ever going to be truly seamless? Well, we hope so, and we're working towards those ends at ConnectingVets.com every day. And make sure you follow us on social media where we are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest is a veteran of the world's greatest Navy and a veteran of Washington, D.C. and Capitol Hill. He is Justin Brown, the founder and CEO of Hill Vets. And it feels like it's been a very long time since I've seen him sitting across from me in this studio because it's been a few weeks at least. And that's, uh, you know, that is a long time for not seeing your smiling face on a Tuesday morning. How are you doing, Justin? How's everything been going? Good, good. I'm doing all right. I mean, it's August. It's August recess up here on Capitol Hill. So things are supposed to be slow, but inevitably what that's meant for me is, you know, we've got all the veteran conventions going on all all over the country. Um, managed to make it down to the VFWs in Kansas City. Right. Um, went to AMVETS uh, down in Orlando, Florida. Looks like I'm heading to PVAs in Dallas, Texas next week and might even hit the Legion or somebody else's over the weekend. So, yeah. you know, the, 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 the veteran conventions are in full swing and, uh, you know, we're still staying pretty busy. The American Legion's convention coming up later this week starts on the 24th. It's actually kind of already underway with the Legion riders doing a ride out to uh, Minnesota where it's taking place. It's in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis. It is uh, got a lot of great events. We actually have an article up on ConnectingVets.com of some interesting highlights, including some great uh, uh, conferences that they're having, focusing on women veterans. And a cool thing that I thought was uh, rather fascinating for a specific in, uh, reason, they are having a film festival with five movies either featuring or uh, starring Legionnaires or having Legionnaires as part of the plot. One of them is a documentary featuring uh, National Commander Denise Rohan, who's finishing up her year in charge. Uh, The other four, all from the year 1938, from separate, a bunch of different studios. Apparently 1938 was the year that Hollywood was like the American Legion. That's where we're going, where the Legionnaires are the heroes in some of these movies. And one of them is filmed at a Legion post. A lot of interesting stuff going on there. Of course, the two that you mentioned that you already went to were pretty big newsmakers. The VFW one, President Trump spoke there. Anytime he speaks any place, it makes the news. And then the AMVETS convention, uh, Secretary Wilkie made his first public remarks since being confirmed. Having never been to one of those, give me the the insight of someone who has been to them. What's it like going to one of those conventions? Is it just a, a constant movement and always something going on, or what's the experience like? Yeah, I mean, they're pretty pretty busy events, and I, I think it certainly depends. I mean, VFWs is a lot larger than AMVETS um, in terms of overall scope. Um, you know, they have a significantly larger membership, and, you know, for them, the event was also in Kansas City. So I think, you know, that tends to be a pretty central location that a right. lot of people can get to. So Kansas City is always a, a big one for them. It's also where their headquarters is. Um, but, you know, it, it's a lot of people, a lot of movement, a lot of different um, breakout sessions. You know, you have some folks who may be there because they focus on legislative issues. Uh, you have others who may focus on, you know, health, veteran service officer type issues. Uh, you have uh, exhibits from, you know, all the various folks who are either working with veterans, could be in a healthcare capacity, could be in, you know, they're trying to sell them, you know, uh, Navy pens, you know, right. I mean, it kind of runs the full gamut of, 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 of things. But uh, they're, 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 they definitely all kind of have their own cultures. Uh, I think that's for sure. You know, <laughs> so AMVETS uh, folks are, 
a little different in how they they you know approach their veteran organizing, if you will, than mm-hmm. say the VFWs. Um, but you know, VFW was interesting because obviously the president was coming into town. Um, Ambets was was also you know it was great to see uh, uh, you know now Secretary Wilkie really make his first big appearance be- before a veteran group as you as you indicated. I think he did a really good job, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, some of the murmurings I heard as the veterans kind of, you know, shuffled off the floor, if you will, uh, were that they felt uh, he'd really knocked it out of the park, um, you know, in in A, what he discussed. But he's also, I don't know if you've ever seen him speak in public. He's actually, he's one of the more eloquent uh, VA uh, or or secretary speakers, if you will, that Mm. I've seen in, in quite a period of time. It's not often a job where that public speaking ability comes naturally to those who get into it because they have a background yeah. in uh, whether it's medicine or, you know, sometimes in the military, if you were a, a flag officer, or a general officer, you kind of build that up. But the, yeah, I have seen some of what he's done as far as public speaking. And I would say as someone who's done a bit of it myself, yeah, he's pretty good at it. And right. that is uh, a good thing. Of course, talking a good game and actually doing the right thing and doing a good job are two very, very different things. Jeezy, just go. Out there, Eric. Hey, I'm just saying. I'm, I'm, you know, the ability to speak well. I speak well, but if you ask me to run the VA, guess what? I'll tell you things are going great, but they're probably not going to be <laughs> if I'm in charge over there. I mean, you know, there'll be really nice coffee machines everywhere. And that's that's probably about it. So, you know, he has just gotten there. He's gotten started on some things. But first thing I want to talk to you about, again, you have uh, quite a few connections on Capitol Hill, particularly within the veteran community. Uh, there are a lot of veteran groups on the Hill coming at things from every different angle. If you can imagine an angle for a veterans group to come at something, there's probably a group representing them on Capitol hill one of which or two or two yeah oftentimes (laughs) there's more than one and the one doesn't like the other because they're (laughs) stepping on their toes it's really it's kind of a it's a fascinating dynamic here in washington dc from uh, an outsider's perspective we should do that let's build a veteran group that doesn't exist in like a day and we'll we'll call in the experts and uh, what do we call ourselves like vet stuff what do you guys do We do stuff for vets. (laughs) We do stuff for vets sometimes. Vet stuff. Um, One of those groups. We can do this. Which is, I would say, among the more controversial groups. uh, Whenever a group is on, I'd say, towards the edges of one political spectrum or towards the edges of any spectrum, they start being uh, falling into that controversial category. One is vote vets. And this is actually tied to the VA and maybe Secretary Wilkie, but certainly before him. Of course, the ProPublica report came out that we've talked about on the show of the, as they were calling it, the shadow rulers of the VA. The three gentlemen, including the head of Marvel Entertainment, who's apparently only been photographed three times in his life and never given an interview, so nobody knows anything about him, a physician and a lawyer, and that the three of them, uh, according to ProPublica, had some uh, significant influence on the VA, and that raised some red flags for several people. Um, A lot of people bringing it up. The VSOs have talked about it. They've brought up their concerns about it. Vote Vets is, uh, you know, uh, I would say uh, a left. Do you want to say left wing? Is that how you would describe them? Or would you just say more liberal or, I mean, they're obviously not a right wing group. They're not conservative, sure. but, you know, veterans. Li- I, th- I more think liberal. any of those work. Yeah. More liberal, left wing, whatever right. you want to call right. it. They've announced that they, they are they, going. They, they help Democrats get elected to office. Yeah. That's a big part of yeah. what they do. Yeah. Um, and they is, are. Is the- 
primary focus. Primary focus yeah. of Vote Vets. That's that's at what least they I think like. so. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we've had them on the show before and talked to uh, Will Fisher of Vote Vets about their previous lawsuit, and that was the one where uh, they said that the process of Robert Wilkie being named the acting VA secretary was not cor- the correct way to do things. Um, most other people that we talked to about that lawsuit said this lawsuit is a waste of time. Vote Vets gave us their reasoning behind it. You can decide for yourself what you think about it. They've got a new lawsuit. This one about those three uh, individuals from who are members of Mar-a-Lago, the President's Country Club down in Florida, uh, having undue influence on the VA. What can you tell us about this lawsuit from your perspective? Sure. Yeah, well, it's... Uh Thanks for the zinger so early in the morning. Um, first off, I, I'm not an attorney. Uh, nope. you know, and you're not going to see me in the dredges of the courtroom following this case. So, with with that caveat, um, you know, I'm going to be surprised if there's you know any real substance that ends up going anywhere in this lawsuit. Right. Um, I certainly think that uh, there are a number of very real and valid concerns with uh, the information that has come out in the ProPublica article by, by Isaac Garnsdorf, uh, highlighting some of these connections who have, you know, if everything in there is true, have had a very, I think, outsized influence right. on the Department of Veterans Affairs, um, you know, without the knowledge of, you know, particularly a number of people who are very, very involved in this space. And, you know, I think some of the you know, in reading that article too, I mean, you can pretty quickly come to the conclusion that, you know, it's, it's very clear some of these people, you know, again, if everything in there is true, actually don't know what they're talking about with regards to veteran policy. Right. And, you know, the concern, you know, in there, and there's, there's a particular story, you know, where, where, where I think it's Ike, the Marvel guy, you know, has concerns that, you know, there are systematic failures at VA because, you know, his tennis buddy or something to that effect, um, you know, her son couldn't get his records, you right. know, and the secretary <laughs> comes back to him and says that, yeah, that's actually not our problem. And he's like, well, it's indicative of a broader systematic problem and blah, 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 blah. But I, I, I think there are a few, few issues here. One is, um, you, you know, it, it, it seems clear that there were a number of VA officials to the level of a, a United States secretary, a cabinet official, um, were reporting directly to somebody that, Nobody else had any clue in the general public of what was going on here. Uh, It does seem clear that there was a pattern of this um, over the course of three secretaries essentially having to go what I might call kiss the ring, (laughs) Um, you know, and and, and get sign off and felt that these three individuals had enough influence to, you know, if not maybe ultimately get them fired, at least to to really make their job painful, right? Like it had been made clear that they, you know, apparently they had the president's ear. What I think is maybe more interesting than some of the allegations that are put forward by vote vets recently or some other ones that have been raised, um, you know, by Congress. And I think Congress will continue to look into this in terms of, you know, uh, you, you, you had a huge Cerner contract uh, going on, right? Yeah. The, the, the electronic health Oh, we were talking record. about that earlier this morning. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, what are some of the implications therein and, and how are these individuals who were, you know, a not contractors, um, uh, B, uh, not, uh, employees of any form. Um, you know, was there, you know, cause you do run into contracting legalities about who's talking about what and, yep. and, 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 you know, should people be talking about these things and should they actually have, um, information that is, you know, frankly, government 
owned and or you know owned by that that third party company, um, and what are some of the ramifications thereof? Um, I think there potentially could be some some legitimate issues that come out of situations like that. Um, but I, but I think you know we can really go down the rabbit hole of you know where was this wrong and where was this this right. Right. Um, at the end of the day, I think it's a massive trust issue for this administration that that that, that they need to deal with um, in terms of, uh, you know, it, it was seen as a very mistrustful action whereby you kind of have these, you know, and people want to use the word shadowy, but the fact is secret or, you know what I mean, oh, certainly yeah. not transparent, um, you know, communications going on at a very, very senior level. Um, that seem to be at the exclusion of particularly your stakeholders, right? Your, 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 you know, traditional veteran service organizations, all the people that are having conventions. I mean, they're, they're bringing veterans from across the nation to pull, you know, their folks together to, you know, a, see what, you know, what are the problems that you guys are having right now and, and how can we help you, uh, fix them by, you know, and, and take that knowledge and pass it to the secretary of the VA you know, you even have the secretary of the VA flying to Orlando, Florida. I don't know if he <laughs> dipped out to Mar-a-Lago before or after, um, you know, but, but, but the point being, you know, those are the conduits, you know, the, those folks have worked really, really hard to engage the veteran population and, and, and come up with, I think, sound policy proposals, or at least try to be legitimate, honest brokers, um, you know, with historically the United States secretary of the department of veterans affairs. So, uh, you know, certainly there, uh, I think there's always been a history of probably United States presidents and, you know, even secretaries, right? They're going to have advisors that they'll reach out to call and, right. you know, say, Hey, what are your thoughts on X, Y, or Z? Um, I think where the, the mistrustful action specific to this is, is that it started to look like a legitimate, uh, chain of command, if you will. Yeah. Does that make sense? And that, yeah, that's, does. that's, that's where the problem uh, really lies in it wasn't so much that you know we're talking to other people we're consulting other people the appearance the appearance that's being put forward here the perception you know that is being put forward is that there were there was legitimate authority to the point where um, United States secretaries three yeah. <laughs> felt the need to engage these individuals for whatever purpose and so again I think what you have here is a real trust issue. Um, and I, I think the administration needs to get on top of it. I mean, yep. I think you still have, you know, the, you've got a number of staff changes that were, were just announced. Um, you know, there's a huge amount of concern with regards to some of the individuals who are in the administration who've been seen as kind of, you know, really shaking things up, trying to make things hard. Um, you know, you had uh, a number of VA employees getting, you know, uh, uh, re-detailed, if you will. You, you had a... Um, you've had a lot of, I think, questionable moves that, you know, some people are calling, you know, political. Um, I think you need to get on top of all those things and try to try to regain some trust. We're speaking with Justin Brown, founder and CEO of HillVets, an organization that does many things, including keeping an eye on what's happening on Capitol Hill and helping to get more veterans onto congressional staffs. One of the people who uh, it appears had to, as you said, kiss the ring, or as I will say, kiss the infinity gauntlet, since we're talking about the 
<laughs> the CEO of Marvel Entertainment, Ike Perlmutter there. And, uh, you know, if he has a problem with uh, uh, me using that example, if he thinks I should have used another one, he's more than welcome to do his first interview ever right here on the morning briefing. Um, so one of those people was Peter O'Rourke. We will, we will go to Mar-a-Lago to make this happen. Oh, I'll, I'll pay out of my own pocket to fly down there and do an interview with him. Absolutely. Offers on the table. I'll come with you. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure he's listening and he's like, yeah, you know what? Over 50 years, never done an interview, uh, and I'm ready now, and it's going to be that guy. You could so, wear, a, like, a Thor mask or something. You know, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I'll cosplay down there. My son's got a little <laughs> Iron Man thing I can throw on. It won't fit very well, but what are you going to do? One of those people who is the acting secretary is Peter O'Rourke, uh, who it looks like is part of those changes that you were mentioning over at the VA as far as the leadership structure. He was acting secretary now he's going to be a senior advisor over at the va you've also got pamela powers who i believe is retired from the united states air force Mm -hmm. becoming the va chief of staff uh you knowing how things work over at the va to some extent and knowing a little bit about how things work in politics is this normal when a a new person comes in for them to rearrange who's around them because i've seen some people like why are they changing everything at the top of the va of course, people at the same time are saying he needs to fix the VA. Doesn't he need to have the people he thinks are the right people in those positions to do it? Right. Uh, how are you looking at the changes at the top over there, the restructuring, if you will? Sure. Well, I, I would say I would say everything about this situation is unique in comparison to every other secretary that I've come in into this position. I mean, you, as you know, and as we've talked about, uh, there is a history right now of, uh, you know, even even. Uh, Secretary Wilkie being on Air Force One, potentially talking to the president to say, hey, I've got a, you know, I am going to be the authority over at VA, um, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, clear house of, of, of potentially some folks who had been considered, you know, and we talked about this as kind of a Game of Thrones issue previously, oh, yeah. right? And you had, uh, uh, you know, the, the Shulkinites getting hit by the Aurorkies and, um, <laughs> you know, now you got the Wilkinators coming in and, <laughs> And, um, you know, but, 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 uh, I don't, I don't even know what to call the Mar-a-Lago crew. I think we, we, we need another clan. Mar-a-Lago-ians, name, right? yeah, clearly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, it's <laughs> funny is they're, they're the real force to be reckoned with. Nobody knew it. Yeah. <laughs> they're coming out of nowhere. They're, right. the, you know, they're, they're like the, uh, the white walkers to use a Game of Thrones <laughs> right, analogy. Right. They're out there, uh, north of the wall and coming down and nobody saw it. I guess south of the wall, if you're the, talking Mar-a-Lago, the, but the, still. That's right. So, uh, you know, I guess, it, I guess it works in this situation, but. I think the the real challenge that you know you have in this situation is I almost don't feel like they can do enough. I, mm-hmm. I almost feel like the cleaner the card they have coming in, uh, the better off um, that 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 Secretary Wilkie is potentially going to be in resolving the issues at VA. Because I think what you have right now in, in shuffling folks like uh, you know Peter O'Rourke, who has just become incredibly controversial, right? Yeah, you know, to the point where. Uh, you know, I, I just got to think, you know, does, does the value outweigh, you know, the challenge of, 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 of keeping, you know, uh, him around and, 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 and going through every single thing that happened at X, Y, Z with whatever it may be. So my, my point is, is I kind of feel like they can, they can, they could do a lot more in terms of changing, uh, some of the staff and administration, because I think really what their problem is right now is they have a trust deficit yeah. and and they're going to continue getting hit on it. Um, and I guarantee you that uh, the Democrats up, uh, you know, in the United States Senate and on the House Veterans Affairs Committee are, you know, going to continue digging into this. And, you know, again, for me, the challenge is, 
we continue to just do this rotation of leadership mm. and we're, we're failing to talk about the fundamental problems and challenges at the Department of Veterans Affairs. And that trust deficit that you mentioned is also, uh, let's be very honest, nothing new. There are a lot of veterans who don't trust the VA and haven't for a long time. So this is just kind of coming at it from a new angle. Speaking of new angles, we've got Justin Brown, founder and CEO of Hill Vets here. That's not the new angle. They've got the Hill Vets House Fellowship. That's not a new angle. We had one of your Hill Vets House Fellows in studio earlier this week when yeah. Senator Tammy Baldwin stopped by. That's great. Uh, yeah, or it, it was fantastic. That interview aired yesterday. They were actually here last Friday due to scheduling issues. But uh, your organization works to get more veterans veterans on congressional staff, something that, as the senator said, there's simply not enough of. And we want veterans uh, to have more of a say in uh, what's going on, particularly with veterans issues. Now, in addition to the Hill Vets House Fellowship, you guys are launching a new program. This is a leadership program called Hill Vets Lead. We've got a couple minutes left and I want to find out about this. So tell me about Hill Vets Lead, Justin. Sell me on this program. <laughs> yeah. So Hill Vets Lead is our, our latest program. And uh, as you highlighted, Hill Vets is, you know, I think done a good Good job of pulling the veteran community here in DC together. We do about 20 events a year. We have a paid fellowship program. So those veterans that want to get in, involved in politics and policy and maybe live in Texas, Washington, Utah, whatever it may be, check us out on hillvets.org. We've got a fellowship to bring you up here, place you on Capitol Hill, get you trained up and get you a permanent job. This is the natural next step for us in that capacity. How do we help veterans who are already here, who've gotten placed in you know, a policy position, whether they're you know, a junior political appointee over at the VA or if they're a, a, a congressional staffer on the Hill, maybe they're uh, working at one of the, the VFW's legislative shop or the American Legion's legislative shop. We're trying to take uh, these veterans and supporters, it is open to spouses, surviving children, a few others, um, and and really pair them with some of our, our, our nation's foremost leaders. I mean, we've got <clears throat> three former secretaries involved in this, Secretary Chuck Hagel, former Secretary of the Air Force, Deborah James, former Secretary of the Army, Patrick Murphy. We've got the Chairman of the House Veterans Affairs Committee, Phil Rowe. Uh, we've got young veterans involved, Congressman Jim Banks, who's going to help us with some defense policy work. Uh, and we're excited that we we just added yesterday uh, the ranking member of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, uh, Mr. Tester. So, uh, and then I'm leaving out our comms folks. You know, we've got some incredible uh, communications folks, but we're going to focus on three things in this first iteration. It's going to be defense policy, veterans policy, and um, communications and media. And so we need we need your help as well, my friend. Well, I know a little bit about communications and media. Not a lot, just a little bit. I've been doing it for a little while. So, you know, when you talk about a, a leadership program and you talk about a fellowship program like the Hill Vets House Fellowship and Hill Vets Lead, what is the difference? What is the demarcation between those two programs? If someone's like, well, I don't know which one is for me, yeah. who is the Hill Vets Lead program specifically for? That's, that's for somebody that already has some experience in policy and is really looking to take it to the next level. Um, you know, and that's why we're pairing them with some of our foremost leaders. You know, what what are some of the secrets of Chuck Hagel that allowed him to become Chuck Hagel? Uh, you know, and those are those are questions that our that our folks will will have the opportunity to get to ask. And and I think one of the really incredible things about this program that we really worked hard on doing is that this is not a speaker series for these men and women. Right. Um, these leaders have agreed to be involved for as long as three years. Um, so they're, they're going to, you know, have the opportunity to come back and see some of these leaders on, on numerous instances and, and really potentially create a, a mentorship, mentory uh, type of relationship. Uh, and, and we're really excited about that. 
It certainly sounds exciting. And having a program that's not for the newbie, essentially, that's yeah. for the person who's got a little bit of experience, seems like the natural progression for Hill Vets, a group that's doing a lot of interesting and fascinating and good things but for that, veterans on Capitol Hill. But that that's the difference between the fellowship, is right. if, if you want to get involved, we have the Hill Vets House Fellowship. Exactly. And that's, and that's where, you know, if you just got done with your post-911 GI bill, got a bachelor's degree, or you, you're, you're, you know, an officer got out looking to change your, your career... Um, you know, check us out, hillvets.org. We've got some great opportunities. You've been listening to The Morning Briefing here on Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Our thanks again to Jason Justice, Captain Justice. Boy, is there a better military name out there? I don't know. I did know a seaman seaman in the Navy, which was kind of funnier, but Captain Justice is a great one. Justice Brands, you can check them out. And also his uh, distiller, brewer, and vintner network doing some really interesting things to help other veterans get into the industry of adult beverages. And of course, you can check us out every day. We're Facebook Live at 7.15 a.m. Show starts streaming at 8.15 a.m. on the Radio.com app. And of course, follow us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook. Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Justin Brown, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you again next week, and we'll see all all of you again tomorrow. Have a great day. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ConnectingVets. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. 